You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WBET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. We talk all the time about how private companies seek to quantify our lives, our interests, our needs, and our personalities with data. It has opened up widespread debate about privacy and security in the modern age. But when it comes to convicts or inmates hoping for a chance at freedom, Computer algorithms that attempt to quantify these things can be what gives them that freedom or keeps them behind bars. A recent New York Times article profiled a case in Wisconsin where that state's Supreme Court upheld the six-year prison conviction of a man based on a private secret algorithm owned by a company that predicts a person's likelihood of high-risk violence, high-risk recidivism, and or high-risk of uh, pretrial misbehavior. The convicted man had no way of challenging that algorithm's designation because it was deemed proprietary information that the company didn't have to disclose. There are also accusations that the algorithm is racially biased toward dependents of Color. How should data be used in our criminal justice system? Can it be a good tool to help reform the way we handle incarceration? Or is it just dangerous, especially when algorithms aren't open to public scrutiny? Or are we sort of in between there somewhere uh, trying to find our way through all of this new technology. Joining me now to talk about this issue are John Cheney Lippold. He's a University of Michigan professor and author of a book called We Are Data, Algorithms and the Making of Our Digital Selves. Also with us is Barbara Levine. She's the founder and associate director for policy and research for the Lansing-based Citizens Alliance on Prisons and Public Spending, uh, also known as CAPS, uh, Barbara Levine and John Cheney Lippold. Thank you for being here on Detroit Today. Hello. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to start with the, with you, John. One of my favorite movies uh, is called Minority Report, uh, and it is about this very subject, the, the idea that we will get to a space in the future where we allow some sort of predictive uh, tool to decide who's going to commit crimes, who's not. We've been on that path, I feel like, for a good long time. Your book, I thought, uh, blew my hair back a little about how far down that road we had gotten, uh, that we are now using algorithms to determine, predetermine behavior and sometimes crafting policy around it. That sounds dangerous to me. I cannot agree more. I would have to say, though, we have to differentiate the idea of the allegory of a science fiction novel and the perceived accuracy, the only reason why Minority Report was problematic is because people's bodies got switched. There was like <laughs> right. the index of what was true got switched to somebody else. In the case of the contemporary algorithmic prediction models, it's never actually an actual person that we're dealing with. We're dealing with patterns. We're dealing with data belief. So it's the assumption that uh, Google can understand exactly who you are. No, Google has no idea who you are. You can even Google the phrase, what gender does Google think I am? And I found out in the research of the book that Google thinks I'm a 65-year-old woman. And so that's not the case. I'm a 30-some-year-old man. But it's to suggest that there are these re- this really big gap between our life as we know it and as everybody else knows it, and then our algorithmic life that is trying to usually make money or control us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Barbara Levine, the the influence of this over public policy, of course, is is the trouble. But but uh, sort of lurking right behind that issue really is the public nature of this. How much are we allowed to know how how much these algorithms 
are affecting uh, uh, public policy. That's that's a, a broader question, I think, in our criminal justice system. Well, it is, and um, you know the, the Wisconsin court uh, addressed the question of this being proprietary. The, the instrument that. Uh, in question was Compass, which is also used in Michigan, and they looked at the fact that this is proprietary. So um, you can see how Compass is scored and the weights, you can see the points allocated to different factors, but you can't see how they're weighted in the algorithm. And sure, that that is certainly a problem. Uh, Talk about one among many. (laughs) Right, right. I was going to say, talk about what the landscape looks like here in Michigan. Uh, for this kind of issue. We talk a lot in Michigan about recidivism, reentry, the, the, the kinds of things that, that either uh, uh, lead people to success after, after they get into trouble or, or, or just more trouble. Uh, talk about where we are in Michigan in terms of what that landscape looks like right now. Well, there is a tremendous focus here, as there is nationally, on risk assessment. And while that's understandable... Um, to a point, the problem is with risk assessment instruments, as with polygraphs, is that they're almost too scientific. You know, people come look at them, they see something quantifiable, and they want to rely on that, and that's the be-all and end-all. And the point is just made is that these instruments are not predictive of any particular individual. They just show statistical patterns. So using them as a tool in context with other information about the person is one thing, but using it as a sole basis for decision is absolutely, you know, worrisome. In Michigan, the parole board has used guidelines that the Department of Corrections' own research division developed um, because there was a statutory mandate to do that as of 1992. Those guidelines um, are quite transparent and they actually predict the likelihood that the board will grant parole as opposed to being a pure risk assessment instrument. Mm-hmm. But most of the factors they count are, are actually risk predictive. I've never seen the algorithm underlying the scoring, because I wouldn't understand it anyway, but I assume if I FOIA'd it, I could get it because it is a state-developed you know, uh, sure. instrument. Yeah. Uh, uh, John Cheney-Lippold, uh, the- Talk about whether whether we're talking about something that is inherently not not wise to pursue to pursue, or whether the strictures that we're sort of assigning to this tool are a problem. I mean, is there something inherently wrong with saying let's use science and and math to determine risk? Uh, we do that all the time in in other spheres. I mean, think of your your insurance rates, for instance, are determined, I would imagine at this point, by pretty complex algorithms. Is that is that a bad thing? I, I think that philosophically, no. I think we should be as rigorous as possible in thinking through experiments and thinking through you know assessment and evaluation, which is exactly why um, last year ProPublica, uh, the nonprofit investigative reporting group, they found out that the Compass algorithm was extraordinarily racist. It would show that white defendants would get very low scores, almost insanely low scores, based on the data that black defendants would get extraordinarily, you know, high scores comparatively, even though the, you know, the actual rates by which people commit crimes, again, recidivists, um, are not as racially biased. 
So the idea then within an engineering logic of these algorithmic processing, which is a lot of, you know, people want to say we need more beta, we be need better algorithms. <laughs> the precise idea about Compass's algorithms being proprietary is one thing, but they also, they are constantly revising it. They're constantly updating it. So what it means to be high profile or high risk in the Compass algorithm is going to be changing according to the algorithm's authors. But at the end of the day, there's this computer science term called garbage in, garbage out, that right. if you have racist policing data at the beginning, <laughs> right. it's going to spit out racist. Using. Yeah, exactly. Sure. So we can't, I mean, unless you take white supremacy out of police forces, <laughs> we're going to be really hard to come to a consequence where white supremacy isn't seen in the on the output. Yeah. So is that an argument then to hold off on these kinds of advances or to, I guess, inject some sort of human uh, counterbalance to, to these these biases? Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm very kind of... I'm, I'm personally, I would suggest no, just precisely because of the point that Barbara made, which is that often judges or anybody, we see evidence that supports something. And if there's for lack of other evidence, we often rely on that no matter how weak. This is what behavioral economists call anchoring. And so if we're going to assume that these algorithms are going to have this kind of racist undertone, I would be very timid to say that this is useful, but precisely because we have these other ways that we can perceive um, potential parole violations sure. or whatever, that it's going to be a discussion that has to be made in public, which currently is not being talked about because it's, again, a private company. Right. Uh, Barbara Levine, talk about uh, talk about the influence of race in, in these decisions. There's no way to separate it out in a state like Michigan and a city like Detroit uh, in, in particular. Uh, are we are we risking sort of the exacerbation of existing racial bias by relying on uh, on these these algorithmic tools? Yes, clearly. I mean, and part of it is the emphasis on prior record when we know that young black males are more likely to be, you've got the whole school to prison pipeline, and yes. so they're more likely to be um, arrested at a younger age and have more of a juvenile record. But I was really stunned when I, I read the Wisconsin Supreme Court opinion, um, which looked at Compass and said that Certain characteristics like being young, unemployed, uh, arrested at an early age, and having a supervision failure could make you high risk, even though you never committed a violent offense. Well, I mean, what is that? The definite, you know, a description of how many half the black males and young black males in Detroit. Sure. I mean, that's really troublesome when you're looking at at these sorts of characteristics. The other, the other thing I wanted to say is that it's. Obviously, it's a question of the accuracy of the instrument. It's a question of the administration of it and how well-trained people are in actually you know, uh, delivering the instrument, having it, having it scored. But it's also what you're going to use it for. And it's one thing to use risk assessment at the parole stage when you're deciding whether to, when you're looking at somebody today and mm -hmm. deciding whether to release them. It's another thing to use it at sentencing. These are all static factors. They all look backwards at somebody's history. And the idea of using it at sentencing to assess risk when you have no idea what the person's going to be like at the end of their sentence. When they get through, sure. You know, you're totally, you, you sentence people to prison partly in the hope that there's going to be some change, either through rehabilitative programming or sheer maturation, especially with somebody young, and then you sentence them on the, if, to the extent you rely on these risk assessment instruments. At that point, you're making a sentencing decision that totally discounts uh, anything that could happen in the future, the impact of punishment, what their age is going to be by the time they're released, what their institutional misconduct history is, 
None of that gets counted in. And all of that gets counted into the Michigan parole guidelines. Right. Right. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm wondering, we've only got about two minutes left. I'm wondering, Barbara, how, how sensitive you think our lawmakers in Michigan are to the, the potential pratfalls here? Are they aware, aware of this stuff? Are they open to hearing uh, uh, debate and, and discussion of it? Well, I think we're at a point where there is a willingness to look at criminal justice reform. We're looking at, at a bill um, that almost made it through last session that would address the way even our parole guidelines are used and try and ensure that that, that they're used correctly. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think there is a strong desire to have evidence-based practices, but I, I do think they need to be educated about the extent to which um, that can go too far. I don't think they're directly involved in things like the use of Compass yet, but... Right. But that could happen, right? It could happen. (laughs) Okay. Uh, John Cheney Lippold, the University of Michigan professor and author of We Are Data, Algorithms in the Making of Our Digital Selves. Barbara Levine, founder and associate director for policy and research for the Lansing-based Citizens Alliance on Prisons and Public Spending. Thank you both for being here on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Okay, if you missed some of today's show, you can hear all of our conversations all the time on the Detroit Today podcast. Go to iTunes or wherever it is that you download podcasts, uh, download and subscribe to Detroit Today, and then you can listen to us whenever or wherever you want to. Detroit Today is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Terethan. Associate producers are Aaron Allen, Addie Wallace, Gus Navarro, and Rhea Basha. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.